Welcome to After the JAG Corps, Navigating Your Career Progression, a podcast for judge advocates leaving military service. After the JAG Corps assists officers transitioning from the military law practice by learning from individuals who have successfully embarked on new careers, providing insight on rewarding professional opportunities, job search strategies, resumes, the value of your military experience, and more. Now, here is your host, Tom Welsh. Today, we're talking to Scott Swosey, another retired Navy JAG with whom I had the pleasure to work while on active duty. And Scott fortunately sent me his bio, if you will, and I've learned some things about Scott. I knew he was a Naval Academy grad, but you were a sailor at a much younger age. Yeah, I was a merchant mariner. Well, first, Tom, thanks for having me. This is really great, this podcast. But yeah, 16 years old, I worked as a merchant marine. I had my union card on an oil tanker for mobile oil up in Alaska and made like $4,000 in 40 days. It was right after the Exxon Valdez oil spill, too. So it was a pretty cool time. So you knew what you were getting into, a life at sea in the Navy. Yeah, I have to give credit to my dad. You know, I grew up in Westchester County, New York, and Texaco used to have its world headquarters there. And James Kinnear, Admiral, was the CEO. And they had a Texaco Westchester ship got christened. And my dad says, you should go try and work on that ship. And I said, that'll never happen. So I wrote a letter, got rejected. But then I said, okay. So I wrote letters to all the major oil companies. And one day, Mobile Oil asked me to come down to New York City. And they interviewed me and said, you know, we'll pay you and got to get a union card and drug tested. And my mom was like, is this really happening? And so 16 years old, they, before my senior year of high school, flew me out to Anacortes, Washington and went up to Valdez twice and was in San Francisco. At 16. At 16. 16, had my own cabin, chip and paint and eating T-bone steaks and salmon every day. <laughs> and then you served on a destroyer or a cruiser. That's, that's yeah. funny. Where you probably had roommates and wasn't eating salmon and steak. Exactly. You know, if you know the uh, Ticonderoga class, I was on Gettysburg. The officers, we slept right under the flight deck and the air crew loved dropping the chocks and chains right above our bunks, you know? So yeah, a little different. <laughs> so Scott, I got ahead of us, but take us through the career. You uh, were a Naval Academy, a grad, pick it up where you want to. Sure. Well, I'll give you the quick, kind of quick version. Grew up in the suburbs of New York City. I went to the Naval Academy right out of high school at age 17. Wanted to be a F-14 Tomcat pilot, but my eyesight started to go bad. And back in the pre-LASIK days, you had to have 2020 uncorrected. So I knew I was going to be a surface warfare guy, poli-sci major at the academy, and did a bunch of summer cruises. I interned for the Secret Service in Washington, D.C. It was pretty cool one summer. And then went to Newport, went to Gettysburg three years. I had four COs on that ship in 37 months, two deployments with the Enterprise Battle Group, communications officer, first lieutenant, Tomahawk missile guy. Went back to the academy to teach. That's when I got picked up for the LEP program. So I was actually an alternate the first time for the law education program. So that what led me to being a faculty member at Annapolis. And then uh, I worked with Rick Stevens at the time was the SJ there. And Dana Dyson was the commandant's JAG for Admiral Ruffhead. And they had me do some investigations. So I think that helped my LEP package the second time around. Navy sent me to law school at Catholic University in DC. I also did a master's at GW in legislative affairs. And then against the normal... I guess assignments, I got to go to Italy right away to Sigonella in Sicily. So that was pretty fascinating. So uh, to give a time hack, what year did you graduate from the academy? Uh, 94. And then you came over to the JAG Corps and graduated law school in 2002. Took the Maryland bar in 2002. And over to Italy, Sigonella, first duty station. Yep. Criminal defense, legal assistance from kind of Iceland to Bahrain was awesome. Came back to the States after that. They sent me to JAG headquarters. And I actually ended up becoming the youngest person to be our community manager. 
So for people not familiar with that, you know, you work with the detailers as the admiral's kind of personnel person based in DC rather than in Millington, Tennessee. And that all kind of came about because I was going to relieve someone in another job and they got injured and they extended in that command. So at the last minute, my orders changed and it put me on a whole different trajectory. So for inside baseball, for JAG Corps folks, my office ended up being right next to then Captain Jim Howe, who was standing up the transformation team with no staff. So him and I started working together and I was helping him on some things. And one day the three admirals called me in and said, Hey, Scott, starting Monday, your job's going to be the transformation team. So I got to work right with Admiral Houck and some great reservists. And then Captain Dave Hayes and Rob Tayshoff kind of building that strategic plan and going all around the country and meeting everybody in the JAG Corps. So, you know, that had its pluses and minuses. People like some transformation, some people didn't. But I think 15 years later, seeing it come to fruition, it's made a lot of big changes to uh, how the legal firm of the Navy is set up. And then you went over to the uh, Capitol Hill, didn't you? Yeah. So I guess, you know, a little bit of reward was I got to go be a legislative fellow to Senator John Warner, really amazing guy, former secretary of the Navy. At the time, Senator McCain was running for president. So Senator Warner was the acting chair of the Senate Armed Services Committee. And that was in 2007. A lot going on. The Iraq War Gitmo, torture, NSA surveillance. So it was every day was pretty exciting. Suit and tie, even though you're in active duty on Capitol Hill. And then sock sent from there? Did yeah, after you're on Capitol Hill, they sent me to OLA. Makes so, sense. Yeah, makes Navy sense. Ledge Affairs. So now you're kind of like a lobbyist for the secretary, taking members and staff on CODELs and staff deals around the country and having people testify on the Hill. And then, yeah, did my time in the breach, worked with Todd Huntley at sock sent, a really great JAG and five and a half months in Iraq, working as a lawyer for a Green Beret One Star. Then I came back to Tampa and Cutter for five weeks, six weeks at a time and worked for a Green Beret Two Star there. So that was a fabulous job. General Charlie Cleveland, probably one of the best bosses I ever had and learned a lot about you know our SOF operators and worked with a lot of our JAGs that were at CENTCOM and SOCOM too. Then you picked up your LLM at the uh, Pennsylvania University of Pennsylvania Law School, right? Yep. Sent me to Penn. So I got to the do a year in Philly and also did a business certificate at Wharton during the evening. And uh, and then I got kind of my dream orders, got to go to Miami and live in South Beach for three years as the international law attorney in Doral at Southcom. And, you know, did international law, but also part of that job was training JAGs in all the Caribbean and Latin American countries. So I was doing SOFA treaty negotiations, but also training our partners and still have some great friends in those countries. It was really amazing three years. And that was your last job. It was, uh, you know, Navy being what it is, they, at the two-year mark, they were, okay, time to leave Miami, come back to DC. And the detailers were talking about interviewing for either the SECNAV lawyer job or the deputy counsel job at the chairman's office. And I knew I wanted to retire. I knew I wanted to retire right at 20. A lot of people told me, hey, if you want to get out and you know 20 is a great time because you're vested and you're young enough to have a whole second career. And so it really kind of worked out. The timing was, was really great. So you knew you wanted to retire, but did you know what you wanted to do after you retired? I had a feel for certain areas I, I wanted to and didn't want to. I knew I didn't want to do the corporate law firm thing. I, I didn't want to go into academia as a professor, like having to publish and write, but I still wanted to take time for myself. So everyone didn't believe me, but I said, I'm going to get an RV and grow a beard and travel all around the country. And that's what I did. So for one year and six days, I did all 48 continental states and seven Canadian provinces and a bunch of national parks and a big 36-foot Winnebago. And and it was amazing. I felt it was a time to see the country that I'd been serving, that I never got a chance to go see all these parts of our 
beautiful country. And it, it was a really great personal experience. How valuable do you see that decompression period as far as before you wrote the next chapter of your life as far as, or next chapters, I should say, of your life? How, how valuable was that? I think it's priceless. I mean, in this day and age, you know, the world just seems to be getting faster and faster and quicker. And then you see something like COVID can come out of nowhere and puts the world on lockdown. So when you have time, whether it's a day, a weekend, a month or a year to take time to yourself to go do something you've never been able to do, it might be traveling, it might be taking some creative class, it might be just going to spend time with people you haven't seen in a long time. You know, there's the kind of European way of life. You work to live or live to work, you know, sure. versus the American way. So finding that balance is different for everyone. As you came back from the RV and started to look at what's next, did you find yourself struggling with finding something that was enjoyable as serving in the Navy? Or was it a matter of, I'm ready to do something else. I just need to figure out what it is. Yeah, I think, you know, we really, you're going to miss it. You don't sense it right away, but the longer you're out of the service, you really miss working always with such a high caliber team of people for the most part. And you have that overall common mission you're all working towards every day. It's just there in the background. We just take it for granted. But when you go off to other organizations or other sectors, that can be a struggle at times. So I did know I wanted to do something that I felt I was serving and contributing and also using my skill set. And I think for me, geography was important too. So a lot of people forget about the geography, but I think if you know where you want to live in the country or the world, that will help you focus your job search right away and not waste a lot of time on ancillary search time. Now, was that the mid-Atlantic region based upon the job you ended up taking or is it a wider swap? More East Coast. I've always been an East Coast kind of person. I, I've got a real big extended Italian American family and we're up and down the East Coast. And I've got all my Naval Academy friends and people too. Nothing against the West Coast, but I knew I was probably going to be either Florida, DC, Northeast kind of thing. So you end up as the chief of staff at the John Hopkins University Cary Business School in Baltimore. How did that come about? Yeah, so kind of lightning in a bottle. The main job, I was the associate dean for strategic initiatives, and then I ended up being the chief of staff by default. Hopkins had never had a business school in its over century history, and they got a $50 million gift from one family to create the business school. And at first, Hopkins said, no, thank you. So that family, the Cary family, went out to ASU and they built the Arizona State University Cary Business School. It's the same family that has done the King Cary Law School at University of Maryland, and now also the Cary Penn Cary Law School in Philadelphia is named after them. So they created the business school at Hopkins right on the waterfront, downtown, next to the Four Seasons Hotel. We had a campus in DuPont Circle in D.C., and the first dean was let go by the president and trustees. So my boss, the turnaround agent, a real great man named Bernie Ferrari, was the dean that came in to kind of set it on a new trajectory of success. And he had been looking for someone to kind of be a right-hand person to kind of help keep the trains running on time. And as the school grew and students and faculty and facilities to kind of do all that. So long story short, it all happened due to a line officer, three-star retired admiral who had been a mentor of mine, was working with a really great search firm called Isaacson Miller that I recommend anybody who's looking for senior level higher ed or nonprofit jobs to check out Isaacson Miller's website. And basically, the admiral connected me with the partner at the firm and had the opening for the job. And within six weeks, I got flown up to Baltimore, met the whole staff, and got offered the job. Had you served with this guy before? I had served with the admiral, yeah. You weren't looking for a job, but he fed your name to that search team or what? 
Yeah, you know, sometimes things are like lightning in a bottle. I didn't even have a resume. I had to create a resume for the package. And it turned out that the dean said, hey, they keep sending me higher ed people. How about a military officer or an attorney? And the admiral told the search firm partner, I've got a guy who's both. And I'm licensed in Maryland on top of it. So it just kind of, it all aligned. Now, you said before that you were a dean of strategic initiatives. That was the title of the job, Associate Dean for Strategic Initiatives. So, you know, fancy title for chief of staff. Okay. Basically handling the strategic planning process. Big thing we did was accreditation. The school had to become accredited as a business school, which sets you up for your U.S. News and World Report rankings. And you ended up doing that for two years. What went into the decision to leave? Well, after we got through the accreditation and I was living in Annapolis, commuting to Baltimore every day and also going to D.C. So some days I'd be in all three cities. I called it the trifecta, Annapolis, Baltimore, D.C. You know, after we got accredited, we started a second school year and it was kind of starting to repeat itself. So the beauty of higher ed is it's very stable and has a lot of opportunities. I think the drawback can be it can be a slower pace for some folks, especially if you're in the admin side staff. You're not teaching. So there's tends to be some repetition, but I would highly encourage military folks interested in higher ed because not only is a campus like a military base, it has all those same functions. So, you know, Hopkins world-class university had 18 lawyers in the general counsel's office, had all sorts of uh, people with law degrees at the VP level. And then of course there's the teaching side too. And there, you know, obviously universities and colleges all across our country, different sizes that can help someone with geographic preferences if they want to even work somewhere rural or more remote. There's a lot of options out there in higher ed. So, Scott, in other words, your old Navy habits of switching jobs every two or three years got the best of you. You couldn't really let that go. So you left Johns Hopkins and did what? Yeah, I mean, it was great. I think that's, you get restless. I'm a big traveler. I mean, I've been to almost 50 countries and all 50 states and I got the travel itch again. And I kind of had the lessons learned from my big RV trip of how I would do it better the second time. So not to bore you, but real quick, I got like a high-tech camper van with silicon, you know, lithium ion batteries and solar panel. And so I could go anywhere. And I did a coastal route for 15 months, Atlantic Gulf Pacific, about 25,000 miles. And it was amazing. Went to like 60 lighthouses and all 21 of the Spanish missions in California. Learned a lot about history, saw a lot of friends and family, beautiful sights. And, and I think that time I said, okay, what do you really want to do? You know, you're, you're hitting the second half of your life, probably. What do you really want to do? Where do you want to live? And I really said, I want to do something of service. And I thought the nonprofit sector would be the place to focus on. So tell us about breaking into the nonprofit sector. How difficult was it? What's the compensation like? All those things that anybody out there thinking about the nonprofit world might be asking, but not have the opportunity to ask you. Yeah, I think those are great questions to to, to ask yourself. I'll put that big caveat out there. I had the luxury, you know, being single that I was able to travel and don't have to put bread on the table for a family every day. So a lot of other people have three, four kids, everything from braces to college to all the family obligations. So maybe not everyone can do it, but if you're able to, and you're willing to say the mission and the altruism of your work has value beyond just the compensation and benefits, that's where you've got to make that balance. And if you find the right cause and organization, I think, you know, you're excited about coming to work every day. I mean, I'll, I could talk about that in a little bit about where you know I'm working currently, but getting into the nonprofit space, it can be difficult in the sense that I think a lot of people post COVID, especially are looking for more meaning in their work. So people are leaving corporate jobs, service jobs, and going to that field. 
As a military person, it can be a bit of a challenge because you're kind of dealing with different cultures and different pace. You got to slow yourself down. A lot of nonprofit stuff can be chaotic and not as organized as we're used to. So I would say everyone that, especially if you're a type A military operator or that very focused attorney, you've got to maybe downshift a little bit to adjust to the culture of those organizations. And then I think the biggest challenge is geographically, where do you want to be and what organizations and missions do you want to deal with? There's some great people working like uh, Colonel Randy Bagwell, retired army colonel from Charlottesville. He's senior leader in the American Red Cross, and he's helped me look at American Red Cross jobs, but he's still helping the armed forces all over the world, both in Asia and Europe. So there's organizations like that. There's Team Rubicon and all these veteran service organizations out there. There's disaster relief. There's all the social services. The organization I worked for in Jacksonville, where I was in Jacksonville, Florida, worked with people coming out of the justice system and getting them a second chance in society and getting them gainfully employed. I've done a bunch of paid and pro bono work in South Florida and Palm Beach County through a great organization called Nonprofits First, which is an accrediting body for anybody who gets money from people like the United Way and things. Got to be part of a team of executives that looked under the hood of all these organizations and see the kind of good, bad, and the ugly versions of nonprofits. And people doing amazing stuff like healthcare for migrant workers, farm workers, to legal aid, to uh, college scholarships for underprivileged kids. So there's a lot of great things out there. So there's all the name brand big philanthropies like Bill and Melinda Gates or Bloomberg Philanthropies or Ford Foundation, MacArthur Foundation, Rockefeller, all the way down to your neighborhood nonprofit and you know, city, regional, state level and international. So there's a lot of choices out there. Talk about the nonprofit you're at now. Anybody who served in the armed forces has to know about this unless you've been under a rock. Uh, <laughs> I've actually seen the musical group with uh, with that his musical group perform in Naples, Italy. And what I loved about it was afterwards, he said, hey, someone said, hey, we need people afterwards to help us break down the, the equipment and load it up for our next show, which they got probably 20 or 30 volunteers <laughs> right away. But what are you doing now? Yeah. So I've got a great boss, uh, Lieutenant Dan, uh, Gary Sinise himself. And you were, you're talking about the Lieutenant Dan Band, which is one of the great things we do at the Gary Sinise Foundation. You know, Gary has been a humanitarian and someone who's helped veterans, military, first responders and families going back over 35 years. The foundation itself is only 11 years old, but he doesn't like to say this. He's a very modest down to earth guy, but many people say he's this generation's Bob Hope. Um, and as you know, like you said, with the USO and other things all over the world, helping folks. He just did two concerts for the Navy and Marine Corps out in San Diego last weekend. And we're moving the headquarters from Los Angeles to Nashville. So that's a big major news announcement that just happened, you know, doing great stuff. So I work on the East Coast mostly with philanthropic individuals and organizations and corporations that want to support the programs we do, including smart homes for severely wounded, you know, amputees and other uh, burn victim warriors and their families. We do specially modified vehicles, wheelchairs. We do the Snowball Express program for all the Gold Star families. These are kids who've lost parents in military service and war and take them to Disney. We do Soaring Valor, where we take World War II Korea vets down to New Orleans, the World War II Museum. We've got mental health programs for spouses, widows, for veterans, first responders. It's really an amazing kind of uh, umbrella of programs and services that Gary and the team have built. So, so it's real exciting to be part of it. How did you get there? couple of things 
lined up. I worked for uh, General Vince Brooks when he was a one star. He's a retired four star, was the head of U.S. forces in Korea. But when he was at the Joint Staff J-5, I was an intern there waiting to go to justice school. So I got to meet General Brooks. And then another great guy I know, he's a armored Green Beret, Marcus Ruzak, works for the Marcus Foundation. Bernie Marcus is one of the co-founders of Home Depot and has been a big supporter of veterans organizations. So I had always heard about what Gary was doing. And then thanks to a great new CEO that Gary hired, Mike Thurtle, he's an Air Force Academy grad and worked at RAND and was a lieutenant colonel in the reserves. He was bringing on a new level of folks to join the team, including some great philanthropy folks from Tulane University and St. Jude Hospital and build out that team across the country. And so the kind of, again, the stars aligned and they asked me to come on board and uh, start doing some work, mostly East Coast based. It's been amazing so far. And how long have you been with them? I started in March. So it's been pretty new. But in the first three weeks, we dedicated our 77th home in Tennessee for a double amputee sergeant from the 101st Airborne. The next week, I was in Daytona Beach in Orlando doing Serving Heroes. So we gave lunch to a class of uh, police academy class in Volusia County and all the 911 operators during bike week in uh, Daytona Beach. And then the week after that, they flew me out to LA. I got to meet Gary and have lunch with him and see all the amazing memorabilia and things that we're shipping in four tractor trailers as we speak to Nashville, Tennessee to create the new headquarters. People look for something that is meaningful as what they did at serving in uniform. And I'd have to think that serving for the Gary Sinise Foundation has to be very rewarding that you're still plugged into the military and other first responders, supporting them and supporting those that have given more than just their time and energy in the service of this country, in some cases, as you've already pointed out, their lives and trying yeah. to take care of their kids. So, you know, as you look at the spectrum of things that can be done after the career, you have to consider this a home run. I'm just so like humbled and grateful and honored to be part of the team. And like you said, you know, many of us went overseas as JAGs to Iraq or Afghanistan, but we were on the FOB for the most part. We were out there as a trigger puller. You know, we were in some danger, but compared to like special operators and the infantry guys and the Marines, and what they've been through in places like Fallujah and Kandahar and things, you know, even for a veteran, someone who did 20 years active duty, it's humbling to see the impact. And you talk about people that the families too, and the spouses, like this weekend is military spouse appreciation day. You see the burden that the families hold. And if you go check out Gary foundation.org website, our YouTube channel, there's really amazing kind of stories out there that shows the stuff we've been doing. You learn things too. Like I didn't know 80% of the fire departments in America are volunteer fire departments. They can't afford a lot of the equipment. So Gary buys them generators, jaws of life, boats, and things that they can't normally afford like a big city fire department. So I'm learning too. And it's been fascinating. What are some of the resources that you found helpful in your post-Navy career? Yeah. Well, first, again, I want to thank you, Tom, for this opportunity. I think you're doing a tremendous service to so many people that get to listen to this. And I've learned hearing from other great Jags that you had on previous episodes, like Aaron Stone and Steve Barney and Todd Huntley, just great things that, you know, I learned about people that I worked with for 20, 30 years. So it's been fascinating. I would throw out there, anyone who wants to reach me on LinkedIn, send me a DM and I'm happy to talk to you about any of these things. Important things, I would remind people, you get a free year of LinkedIn premium as a veteran. That's essential. And what I learned the hard way is LinkedIn premium lets you do what I'll call the six degrees of Kevin Bacon. You know, you know who's in your network, but when you want to work at a company or organization with premium, you hit people 
and you can drill down and see who you have second and third order contacts with. And once I learned to use that, that helped me so many times get through the HR floodgate of online applications and get you that first interview just by someone you know or someone just putting in a word, you should pull this person's resume out of the pile. That's essential. So I, I highly encourage you to do that. Another great program, and it's a nonprofit that I'll highly recommend, is called ACP, American Corporate Partners. This was created by a really great guy, Sid Goodfriend, and his fellow Wall Street folks after 9-11 to give mentorships from really high-level organizations to veterans, enlisted officers, and spouses. And this is everything from like Wall Street firms to Major League Baseball to all these great groups out there that you get a one-on-one mentorship with them. One of the questions that I have regarding like ACP is, are there opportunities for lawyer mentors? I've been both a mentor and a protege with ACP. And the mentor they gave me, I said, hey, I'd really like to talk some about nonprofits. And they gave me this great attorney, a guy named David Zacks in Atlanta, who uh, served in Vietnam as an army JAG, went on to be a lawyer for Augusta National Golf Club and served as the chair of the American Cancer Society. So that's the mentor they gave me. And he was such a great resource and sounding board to be there for me, screening opportunities and building out the network. So, you know, there might not be as many attorneys available, but there are people in the network. And then I turned around and and been a a mentor to protégés. I helped out a Navy master chief in the Norfolk area who wanted to get into nonprofits. So they're out there. Great. I, I think another one that people we tend to forget about is You know, we're all alumni of great colleges and law schools. So don't forget their career services department, you know, so at a minimum, you got your undergrad and you've got your law school. And some of us also have like a master's degree. They have more and more programs out there, both free executive education, but also the career services for most schools will help you no matter how long it's been since you graduated. And you'd be shocked at how many amazing free resources you get through the schools you went to. So I would just throw that out there. And then last but not least, we tend to want to make everything happen ourselves as naval officers and attorneys. You can't be afraid to ask for help. You can't be afraid to say, I'm struggling. You can't be afraid to say, I need a sounding board here. When the time comes, you know, get your resume out to people, get that LinkedIn stuff out there, but also talk to people. You know, in 20 minutes, you could probably make a list of 10 to 12 trusted mentors or people that you know from the JAG Corps or the service that you could just talk to. And they will give you, just like we've done in this podcast, a tremendous amount of ideas and encouragement and be there for you. Scott, this has been invaluable. It's amazing. You know, I haven't seen you since probably 2013 when I left the tiny Caribbean island. And here we are nine years later. Obviously, we're on different paths right now. But that brotherhood, that sisterhood that exists in a Jaguar, and that's what we're trying to do here with this podcast is build a network across the services. And I've been very fortunate to have folks that are willing to put their hand up and say, yeah, I'll come on board. And I want to thank you for your time. I want to thank you for the information and the perspective that you brought. And I want to thank you for what you're doing now with the, the Gary Sinise Foundation. I know that it's it's Gary who's using his rank, if you will, for good and using that platform to help first responders and military. But it takes a team, as you know. And so it's great to know that you have found something like that and that we've got a guy like you on that point helping our fellow veterans and our, our fellow first responders. So thank you very much. Well, thank you, Tom. This has been a real pleasure. And I, again, I think you're doing a great service for everyone. So se- the second you asked me, I didn't hesitate. And it's, it's been great spending time with you. You too, Scott. 
Thank you for listening. If you like this podcast, be sure to subscribe and tell your friends. After the Jag Corps is a TJW 50 Associates LLC production.